0: Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls, I'm your host, Rob Levati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Marshall Hammer. This was a very exciting episode for me because I've known Marshall for a few years through her work as a group leader for a local survivors of suicide loss group. In addition to being a group leader, Marshall is also a loss survivor herself, a Reiki practitioner, and an interspiritual minister. On this episode, Marshall and I talk about losing her dad to suicide 11 years ago, her involvement with AFSP and the survivors of suicide loss meetings. We talk about Reiki, which is a form of energy healing and how it can be used to help with grief. We also talk about the importance of community and connection after surviving a suicide loss. And finally, we talk about some helpful resources for new loss survivors. I really want to thank Marshall for coming on the episode today and for all the work that she does around healing and helping lost survivors. And with that, let's get into it. I've recently gone through the process of switching therapists, so I know how hard it can be to find someone who's a good fit. It feels like most of the time I've either gotten put on a wait list or have gotten no response at all. With our sponsor, BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help with a wide range of issues. Once you get matched with a therapist through BetterHelp, you can talk to them however you feel comfortable via text, chat, phone, or video call. To get started, visit betterhelp.com/wotw for writing on the walls. That's better h e l p dot com backslash W-O-T-W to get 10% off your first month of therapy. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode today. Hey, Marshall, good to see you.
1: Good to see you, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. it's It's been a long time. Uh, so I, I first met Marshall probably back in, geez, 2018 or 2019 at a Survivors of Suicide Loss meeting here in Asheville. And it's probably been about that long since I've seen her. So it's really great to be here with you today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's great to see you and have the chance to like connect a little bit.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit about your involvement with those survivors groups. Um, And I think there are a lot of other things we're going to touch on as well. But first, there's a question that I like to start with. So understanding the loss of your dad, which I believe was 11 years ago, I'm wondering what you would say is the most important thing that you learned either from your dad while he was here or from his loss to suicide.
1: You know, it's interesting that you that you asked the question that way. I appreciate that question because I think that what my dad taught me, what I would consider the most valuable thing that I learned from him, I did learn through his death. And that was a uh, little background when I was a kid, I was always striving to make him proud of me and for his affection, and he was he was a lovely man, but a little distant, you know, he, he worked a lot. He, he had a lot of uh, pressure on him, I think. And so I finally gained that when I turned 18, believe it or not, I came out to him as a queer person, didn't expect for him to accept me. But when he did, I said, you know, I don't think I know you very well either. So maybe we can take some time to get to know each other more and we did that so we had a lot of healing of our relationship during his his life and then when he died i had this realization that you know i thought the confidence i had in myself and my own self esteem was mine but what i had done was i had grounded that in him so when he gave me his his pride and affection and and love then that was actually, I was adopting it from him. I was sort of borrowing it from him. So when he died, though I didn't have a ton of shame about the way that he died, I I lost a ton of confidence. And I thought, oh my gosh, I guess I was borrowing this and I need to find a way to have my own.
0: Wow, that's, that's a really, really great answer first of all, did, did we have the same dad?
2: <laughs> oh, maybe
0: <laughs> The way you describe your dad uh, really reflects a lot of how I viewed my father, mm. um, as well as that uh, dynamic you describe of really almost living for uh, trying to get his validation or his approval. That was something I experienced through most of my youth into my adulthood as well. Um, the idea of if I try hard enough, if I do well enough in school, if I get this job, my dad's finally going to be not just proud of me, but able to communicate it with me in a way that I feel like I need. Um, so when when he ended up uh, dying, which is back in 2017, I, I felt completely lost. It's like I didn't know what I was operating for anymore. Um, and I had to take a pretty uh, dark and challenging path to eventually find the answer which was living to make myself proud and learn how to validate myself but I really lost touch with what what am I doing here if I'm not living to make my dad proud anymore
1: absolutely I can relate to a a lot of that and I remember you sharing at the time when I met you about your dad too and thinking oh we have we have a lot in common with this we definitely
0: do And I'd imagine our our dads were somewhere around the same age when when they completed suicide. My dad was uh, 50, 54. How old was your dad?
1: He was 61.
0: 61, yeah.
1: And how old were you when you lost your dad?
0: I was 26.
1: I was 27.
0: Okay, yeah. So yeah, we really got a lot of similarities there. And it sounds like both of our dads were right in that window That seems to be among the most vulnerable demographic for suicide, which is men, middle-aged men in that age range. You mentioned not feeling a lot of shame about the way that your dad died. Losing my dad to suicide has been a really interesting exercise in separating shame and guilt. And I don't think I felt a lot of shame either. Mm. Uh, I remember pretty much the day after my my dad died, being ready to talk about the fact that this was suicide. Here's why I believe it happened. It actually explained a lot in terms of some of the the ways that I think he, he struggled silently. Mm. But the guilt is something that caught me off guard. And it's something that I felt quite a bit of. And I'm wondering if you experience guilt around your dad's suicide and if it's something you could uh, share about a little bit.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. I think I was pretty lucky to not have to experience a whole lot of guilt. And the reason why, I was with my dad a week before he died. He had threatened uh, a week before, and we found out about it. My mom, who had been divorced from him for all these years but was still a good friend to him, called some of his friends, his family, to go there and by the time i got there i i drove home to my hometown uh my childhood home where he was and it was like 2 a.m. and i because of our relationship evolving i could speak to him really frankly and i said pop can you believe all these people who have come to be with you in the middle of the night no less driven hours to get here just to make sure that you know how much they love you and you know he seemed to receive that but when he died a week later I didn't have a whole lot of the thoughts of what I could have done something more because I I realized if he didn't feel that if we couldn't reach him with that all of us being around in the middle of the night you know to show our love, then I don't know what we could have done. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it makes me think about, I, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with, with Jack Jordan, Dr. Jack Jordan. He's very involved with the AFSP. I had him on an earlier episode and uh, leading up to that, read his book, uh, which is called After Suicide Loss. Mm-hmm. And in there, he talks about the eight different types of grief that he sees commonly associated with suicide. And one of the most common, which is one that I felt was the, the what if type, what if I would have done this, or mm-hmm. why didn't I do this, or I should have done more of this. And I think there's this idea uh, that's, that's very common after losing a loved one to suicide was if I could have done enough to fill their cup, maybe it would have changed the outcome. Uh, and I think what I've learned through losing my dad is, it doesn't ha- matter how much you pour into a cup if the lid is on it. <laughs> and that's that's the way I view my dad in in the last months and years of his life is being unable to receive what was being given to him in terms of love and affection and attention. And I don't think that was any fault of his own.
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, visual for for what we try to do for, I'm and yeah. And I think in the groups I've worked with folks who have had tons of guilt, you know, I, I think I was fortunate in a way that I had a pretty quick way to look back and say, Oh, it really, it really isn't anything I could have done. There really isn't anything I could have done yeah, like that pouring into a into a closed cop.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly. And, and, and the more I reflect on it, and the more I speak with other survivors, I realize that there's really no way to characterize the range of emotions that one might feel like in a standard suicide loss, because there's no such thing. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like you and I had pretty good relationships with our dads. Um, my dad and I rode motorcycles together We played music together. We went to concerts together. We hung out and drank together. I mean, there were a lot of things that in a lot of ways he was like a a buddy on top of being my dad. And I think a lot about folks who either are in no contact situations with a loved one when they lose them to suicide, or maybe have just recently gotten to a large argument and, and the guilt that might come along with that and feeling like not only, was there more that I could have done, but did I somehow contribute to this? Which I've spoken with some folks about in, in in feeling like they were a contributing factor in their loved one's suicide. And obviously there's no way to know exactly what was going through that person's mind when they made that choice. But I'm of the belief that there's very little we can do to prevent someone from doing that. If, if they have their mind made up to do it. And I think there's also very little we can influence or very little we can do to influence someone to make that decision. I think it's something that really is an inside job.
1: Absolutely. And and statistics show that the the best ways we can help prevent they're really just being there with someone listening to someone when people speak about the struggles that they're going through and you know of course some people won't want to be vulnerable and open up in that way, if they're in that really dark place, but that seems to be what, what helps people the most. And that's something we can all do more of, you know?
0: Yeah. Well said. I'm hoping you, you could share a little bit with me about your dad. I'm curious what he was like. You talked a little bit about this, uh, maybe, emotional struggle that he had and opening up and being vulnerable you talked about him being into his work and working a lot and that sounds pretty pretty on par with what I would expect to hear of a man of that generation I'm wondering beyond that what when you think back on your dad what are what are some memories or uh, character traits that come up to the front of your mind
1: well he was uh, a self-made Person, I mean, he was a white man, so he had uh, privilege and generational wealth of some degree, but he put himself through college by working several jobs, he became an attorney and moved to the small town that we lived in in, in southwestern part of Virginia, and he did like kind of all the different types of, of law. For a small town, I guess you sort of are a jack of all trades. And so he did everything except, I think, bankruptcy. And he was very successful. He was also uh, a very high-functioning alcoholic. And I think that probably the things that he was tortured by were being masked through that and there may have been some other things going on so but i i think he grew i know he grew up in a pretty dysfunctional home environment and then so did i you know my parents were both they were very different and so i always accept that where he was lacking in being able to express his feelings and affection that was just a product of of his upbringing. He probably didn't have that either. And that's the part that actually makes me sad. And so I wonder the things that may have been torturous to him, he could have been carrying that stuff for, for ages and none of us would know because he wasn't talking about it. But when I think of him, he had such a great sense of humor he was a really wonderful storyteller. And uh, my younger brother, you know, he would repeat himself and tell the same jokes and the same stories. And my younger brother would say, oh, no, not again. And I would be saying, <laughs> yes, again, I want to hear it again.
0: Egging him on.
1: Yeah. And even now, you know, when I hear jokes that I'm like, oh, wow, pop would have, you know, loved that. Like, especially the the cornier, the better. He had a yeah. way of playing it off that it was maybe smooth, smoother than you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think how corny that is, but <laughs> they all were and my sense of humor is very much like that.
2: Wow,
0: it's it's really great to hear about your dad, um hear about his sense of humor and and how maybe you've adopted some of that and how I'm I'm sure that was a way that you were very connected to him. Mm. It it sounds like by all external accounts, your father was a successful man. Um, He built, sounds like his own uh, law practice, uh, worked very hard, provided for his family, had a family to provide for. So a lot of the boxes that I think we look at societally, your your Mm. dad had checked in terms of being successful. I wonder, do you think he saw it that way? Do you think your dad looked at his life and thought he was successful, or was the bar still even above where he was?
1: I always thought that he did, but what I've learned since he's since he died, I've gone to a 12-step group called Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, yep. and I've learned a lot about perfectionism, and I think that He was sort of plagued by that. So even though I felt like he had a a positive outlook, he he definitely took pride in his work. He loved to help people. I think there was some something he could never reach in that perfectionistic kind of mindset that, you know, came from many generations before him, I'm sure.
0: Absolutely. And, and the reason I ask is because as you were sharing, it was making me think about my dad and my dad didn't leave a traditional note when he chose to take his life. But what he did do was about 10 months prior, he wrote the most emotional thing I'd ever witnessed him put out, especially put on papers. He wrote a note about coming to terms with his own alcoholism. Mm. And Some of the things he said in that note replay through my head on a daily basis, and and one of them is he said, on the surface, I have no reason to feel this way. I have a great job, a great house, a loving family. He said, I I love most people, and I think they love me as well. What I've never had is peace within me. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how it doesn't matter what he accomplishes because the bar is always right above that. And he knows rationally that he'll never be able to attain those heights, but he can't stop himself from always being on to the next better thing, which made me really sad for him when I read that Mm. and also made me able to really relate because I think I'm the same way in, in a lot of ways, transitioning a little bit when, when my dad died, and this is kind of where the namesake of this podcast comes from writing on the walls. Um, you know, I'm sure you know what it's like. We had family coming over the house, friends coming over the house, people I haven't seen in 15 years. And it was just people everywhere bringing food and flowers. And it was, it was overwhelming. And -hmm. I don't know where I came up with the idea, but I was like, I don't want to waste this, all of this love and all of this connection. So I went to the store and I bought a bunch of different colored markers and our basement was painted like this ugly beige color. And what I did is before I would let anyone leave the house, um, if they drop by, I would make them go in the basement and write a message on the wall,
1: oh, write, write
0: wow. something either to my dad or about my dad. And it was really cool. I still have pictures of it and I look back on it from time to time, but it was amazing how how similarly everyone viewed my dad and how different it was from the experience I had. Growing up with a man who was troubled, who did work too much, who was a high-functioning alcoholic. I was pretty close to that. I was in the splash zone, you know? But looking at how other people viewed my dad, uh, man of the hour, life of the party, funniest guy I know, you know, a lot of that. And it was really cool to read that and be able to get in touch with who is this person as a man, not just as my father, because I was having a hard
2: time
1: separating the two. Absolutely. I love that the, that people wrote messages on the walls and I think what you point out or what you're sharing just now points to is about how we, we have these different masks kind of. And if we're not, I think our generation does a really great job of uncovering that stuff and like looking at our shadow parts and really trying to know ourselves in an informed and embodied way that might help when things like depression come along and, and different mental health, you know, challenges. Yeah. I'd like to think we're progressing in that way.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. I definitely think we're better equipped to handle those things. And I think the fact that the conversation is progressing along with it And we are able to talk about some of those things, I think, especially as men um, being freed from some of those traditional chains that we've had around not being vulnerable, not being emotional, Mm -hmm. not being sensitive. Um, So I think that's definitely a step in in the right direction and helping us be able to address some of these things before they get to the breaking point.
1: Absolutely. And that's a huge benefit for for men, for that to be changing for men, I think.
0: I think so, too. I think so, too. And it was luckily something I realized before losing my dad. I was already in therapy for about 10 months at the time that my dad died. And if I didn't have that foundation, I don't know how things would have gone for me. And luckily, I've kind of stuck with that and grown in that since then. Um, and it's something I advocate for anybody. I don't think you have to be depressed or have to have a diagnosable mental health disorder to to benefit from speaking to a therapist one-on-one.
1: Absolutely. I agree.
0: Something I'd like to go back to, we we talked a little bit about shame and not feeling that. And it sounds like you didn't have a lot of experience with guilt as well uh, around your dad's suicide. I'm wondering when you do kind of stop and reflect on it. What are the emotions that you feel most in touch with or feel the strongest, either in that kind of immediate aftermath in losing your dad, or what shows up for you right now in this moment when you think about him? It's a big question.
1: That's a great question. Yeah. Well, at the, in the moment that I got the call, my brother called me, and I think I was I was in shock for that day. Um, but the first thing I said was asshole. And my brother was really surprised. You know, he's told me since, like, I, I couldn't believe you. You know, anger was the first thing that happened, mainly because I knew my brother had found him. And I, I would have wanted to avoid that at any cost. I would have rather it been me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, then then some shock. Even through the gathering, he was cremated, but we had a little setup. It was sort of like a memorial service that no one spoke. I think maybe my uncle decided to speak impromptu, but it wasn't meant to have uh, any leadership. It was just a way that people could come and gather together. And I think that was somewhat a blur. I think I, my family and I were really comforting the folks that were there as opposed to being comforted by the folks that were there, although I did receive some comfort from them. Now, when I think about it, I think I'm resolved to have more peace about it now. I I have the comfort of thinking about, you know, that there likely was nothing we could do, that we were not able to reach him for that reason. And I just feel sad. I don't feel as sad about him dying as I feel about where he was, where he got to, to make that decision. I think that is the hardest part for me. Like, and also thinking about him as a little boy and growing, you know, where all this, he started maybe internalizing some things. One thing that's interesting, the, within the week before he died my brother had a therapist and was able to the therapist w- was willing to see my dad so my brother drove them there and he told me my dad was saying so this this makes you feel better when you see a therapist you talk about your stuff and it, it you feel better and my brother said well yeah i mean sometimes i don't feel better sometimes i it doesn't feel good but ultimately i feel better and lighter. And my dad said, I'm terrified. And that is, that's probably the most expression that he gave of what he was going through.
0: Yeah. That, that idea of the fear he must've been feeling in that moment is palpable. I can almost feel it myself. Mm -hmm. And, And you touched on something that for me has been almost the magic elixir in terms of challenging emotions that I felt around losing my dad i plan on doing a solo episode after this and i've started to write the the template out for it and i want it to be about the range of emotions that we feel after losing someone to suicide And I feel like I could write a book on how not to cope with those emotions.
2: (laughs) Mm.
0: Uh, But, you know, I, I think I've felt the ones you'd expect the anger and the disgust, the guilt, maybe a little bit of shame, the denial, the shock, the confusion. That was a big one for me. And I put all the whys that we ask in that confusion bucket. But for me, the thing that has enabled me to work through all of those tough emotions is exactly what you touched on, which is the ability to feel sad and not for me, not for me, not having my dad anymore. I'm able to feel sad for him and I'm able to feel compassionate for what he must have been going through in those final moments where he decided that suicide was the only option for him.
1: Yes, I think that's. And in a way, although I would have loved to learn how to do that in a different circumstance, yeah, I think it is a great benefit. Like it's a life skill that no, none of us are really taught that. But I think being able to have that compassion and get past our own selves and see there is something bigger going on here. Of course, I'm sad for me that I don't get to hug him again, you know, or hear him call out to me when I come in the door, you know, things like that, ask him for advice, but it's clearly wasn't about me. It was about him. And, and that is just terribly sad that someone would get to that, that point.
0: You know, being on the outside uh, knowing you from the survivor's meetings and knowing a little bit about the direction that you've headed in terms of your your various careers. I, I see you as having taken this situation around losing your dad to suicide and using it to find your own peace and purpose, which is, I think, the best case scenario. I think that's the best thing we can do with what can be otherwise a completely senseless tragedy. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, enduring a loss like we have can be the final nail in the coffin. Unfortunately, I don't know that everyone has the resources, the skills, the ability to work through, not just work through the tough emotions around losing a loved one to suicide, but being able to use it as, I don't like this terminology, but it's its the only thing coming to mind right now, using it as a stepping stone. Mm. To bridge the gap between where you are and the next chapter in your life,
1: when I think of my where I am now, I really I give a ton of credit to my dad and losing him and that single event. I think a lot of us who have lost someone, whether it's by suicide or not, will sort of mark our timeline of life as like, this was the time before I lost my dad, and this has been the time after. And who's to say, maybe I would have ended up the same in the same place, doing the same kind of work that really fulfills me. But I don't know. I think it definitely sent me it. I always say that it forged my path, like it made it more concrete. And so I think through doing adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, that was a a huge step for me then realizing through that program that I had lost access to my own body's messages, my yeses and nos, my feelings, preferences. And so I went to Reiki to help me with that, which has ended up now in November. It was five years I've been in practice with my, with Reiki working with animals and people. And then certainly my spirituality grew in ACOA, and because of my, I guess, my prowess for trying to figure out how to heal from the loss of my dad and that that grieving journey, I think that that also set me on a path to attend seminary. I went to a two-year program, and it was during COVID, so I still haven't met some of my cohort that I like, am totally in love with. But now I've been using that for community ministry, both in the survivor groups that meet monthly. That's been going on for about five years now. And I lead some topic groups on spirituality at some local addiction recovery treatment centers. And so I have all these ways to learn you know, what people are going through and people share with me very openly and deeply. And I just couldn't be more fulfilled, I think, in this in this work.
0: Yeah, that's that is powerful to hear. And not only do you have all these ways to learn, but being on the receiving end of a group that you've led, you have all of these ways to be able to help other people who have gone through similar things, which is in- intensely powerful. And and I love the way you put it about your dad's death forging the path to some of these things. And I've, I've wrestled with some of those thoughts myself because I, I definitely don't want to use my dad or his suicide as a martyr. Mm. But I really don't know if I would be here, not just in this chair. I don't know if I'd be here if it wasn't for losing my dad to suicide. I was already... Pretty deep in my own depression
2: mm-hmm.
0: and dealing with undiagnosed bipolar disorder, dealing with my own suicidal intensity, pretty deep in my own struggle with alcohol and substances. Mm-hmm. If, if I didn't have the wake up call of the path I was on, which was seeing my dad, who was 25 years further down the path, seeing what happened to him, uh, that was pretty scary for me. And that was... Uh, And like you said, I wish I could have learned that lesson in another way, but that's what eventually led me into recovery. So I'm in various 12-step programs myself and am now at a point about five years in where I feel ready to take this grief that has been a weight and use it as a hot air balloon and use it to carry me on to the next thing. There are a couple of different directions I'd like to go right now based on some things you touched on. I'm really curious to hear more about Reiki. It's something I know very little about, and I'm very curious about your experience being on the receiving end of that, um, as well as now being a a practitioner. And what I'm especially curious about is how Reiki could be beneficial for someone who is coping with something like a suicide loss.
1: Oh, those are great. I'm so excited to answer these questions. <laughs> so Reiki is a Japanese technique uh, modality for healing. And essentially what it is, it uses the the energy that enlivens all of us that can be referred to as life force energy. Some people call it chi or prana or Reiki with the lowercase r those are synonymous with that life force energy that, you know, keeps us moving. And with a capital R, Reiki is about the technique where someone channels that energy through and gives it, offers it to a recipient. So I learned about it through my massage therapist. She was doing Reiki with me in addition to our massages and we started talking about it. Then at some point, I I feel like I met five or six Reiki people in a month or two months. And I thought, oh gosh, wow, this is maybe looking for me. And that was a great way, like I said earlier, to reconnect to my body's messages. I had been people pleasing and placating for so long that I really just lost the ability to know what I felt or thought. So let's see. So then experiencing the Reiki, I was really excited to learn. I found a program where I could learn and I would do self-treatments and work with my dog and watching him and, you know, animals don't have the same layers that we do. So they kind of just ease into it a lot more easily. They don't have to think a bunch of think thoughts how do I relax? Should I count my breath? Am I breathing? Am I doing this right? You know, all that. And then seeing how much it it was helping me and helping him. And I got to practice in my class on some friends and they would have great feedback. So I thought, this is something I think I could share with others. And so I sought the, the final part of the program, which is uh, Reiki master certification. And then I've taken some animal Reiki courses since then. What was the last part of your question?
0: Yeah, uh, I appreciate you explaining um, a little bit about what, what Reiki is and, and how you found yourself practicing. Uh, the second part of the question was how you could how how you find that it could be beneficial for someone who is going through something like a suicide loss.
1: Oh, yes. So. Reiki is energy medicine. People will put it in the same category sometimes with like acupuncture because it works with meridians and chakras uh, si- similarly, but I use my hands whereas acupuncture would use needles and um different energy tools as well. I think it's incredibly helpful to someone who is grieving. Reiki you, at the basic level It really challenges the no pain, no gain motto that we have, especially in American culture. Like in order to fix your elbow, you have to bend it back the other way and all this kind of stuff. Reiki is a really gentle, nurturing, soothing, uh, healing tool. And at the very least it helps with relaxation And sometimes pain, if people are having pain, it's good for that. Physical pain and stress relief, because it does help the body go into that deep rest that we so rarely give to ourselves. But what I have seen it do and heard from folks that I've worked with, it can really help resilience building. It helps. It can help you to feel more self-secure, more strong. It's meant to go to wherever is needed and be guided by your system. So you don't even have to say what it is or understand what it is that you need. It's just going to bring you more into balance. And through that often is self-soothing and strengthening that resiliency.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. And what it brings up for me, which is not the intent of this podcast, is to be uh, an analysis of Eastern versus Western medicine. It definitely (laughs) tickles my curiosity a little bit. And it's interesting being brought up in a culture of Western medicine. I have no problem going to a doctor or a psychiatrist and them saying, here, take this pill. We don't really know how it works or if it's going to work at all, but just take it and see what happens. Hell yeah, give it to me. I'll give that a shot. But then when it comes to practices and modalities that have been around for thousands and thousands (laughs) of years, practiced by millions and millions of people, I feel a certain level of skepticism around those Mm -hmm. things. And I'm wondering what you would say, because I know there are folks like me out there who are very curious about these practices, but fighting their own skepticism around them. What would you say to someone who's battling that?
1: Well, first I'd say you're not alone. A lot of people are skeptical. And and I personally love working with skeptics. People will come to me and say, oh, you do Reiki? Yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that. And I say, well, yeah, I don't either. I mean, I don't have to because I, I see this all the time. And so I think I would just say, well, what's the harm in, in trying it out? What's the harm in taking a step and you know maybe you get to be proved right that there's nothing to it you know you were you were correct about it this is all just some malarkey or the the best scenario i think would be something does happen and what i find with reiki something always does happen i may not know what it'll be but typically people respond and say even with when they're observing their animal companions They'll say, oh, my dog who hasn't been able to do much except go out and pee wanted to go like on this mile walk today after a Reiki session. You know, it's really, it's just, you know, you could try it and see, or you could stay where you are. And that's fine too.
0: I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think where I get hung up is the idea of chi and chakras and meridians and things that I know very little about, which is my own ignorance, but based on what I do know or do believe about trauma being stored in the body, it makes a lot of sense that a technique like Reiki could help move some of that.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I think another great thing is that you don't have to really know. People sometimes ask me anatomical questions, which I don't know that that much about anatomy because really I'm channeling the energy to go where your system thinks it should go. And it's almost like entrainment where two things are moving at different speeds and the weaker speed takes on the stronger speed and starts to go faster. So I think of that as a good example of how Reiki kind of works within the body, within the energy system.
0: And if what we're talking about here is energy within the body, um, the the very little I did not do well in physics in high school, but the very little I do remember is that energy doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. So what, what I'm wondering is when you're working with this energy in one of your clients and working to move it out of their system, I'm wondering where does it go? Is it something that you've taken on? Is it something that you can then in turn feel something that mm. your client was feeling? Where, where do you believe that that energy moves to?
1: Well, I get intuitive senses about wh- what's happening in a client's system, but I don't take on any energy from them. What I notice happening is like, maybe, maybe the heart energy feels like it's going a little bit slower than what we would perceive as the average speed, but the mental energy is going really fast. So I think what what I experience is that it just gets smoothed out. The energy that I send uh, to be received by the person or animal, it sort of just balances out. So it's it, you're right. It doesn't go away, but it whereas we might try to think of like a visual example i know reiki i could talk about it all day and also i could it could be confusing you know people more so i think what would happen is some of the faster speed of the energy in mental in the mental area like somebody has a lot of anxiety that might move down a bit and start to speed up A little bit of the stagnation in the heart area and so it just sort of becomes more of i think of it like a figure eight like that the whole system is going closely to the same the same speed the same tempo
0: so so what i'm hearing it does yeah and i think what i'm hearing i want to make sure this is right is that it is about maybe changing the state of that energy or its intensity Mm. So the yes. visual that came to mind for me is if you have a pot of boiling water and you take it and stick it in the freezer, it's not changing the state of that water or how much there is, but it is cooling it down, making it less intense.
1: That's a great that's a great visual for that. Absolutely. You can keep
0: you can keep that one. No, no charge. Okay.
1: I'll credit. <laughs> I'll credit you, Rob.
0: Thank you. Well, yeah, thank you for going down that path with me. It's something I was very curious about and wanting to pull on your experience with. I do want to touch on the other of the two things that popped up for me before, which is my my connection to you, which is seeing you as a group leader for the survivors of suicide loss groups through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP. Um, These are fantastic groups that are offered all over the country, uh, maybe all over the world I don't know and and what they are is they are peer uh, peer- led groups for people to be around uh, fellow survivors of suicide loss, share their experience and whatever it is that might be coming up for them it's a uh, it's an interesting group because there is sometimes feedback that's given from other group members which I found very helpful whereas in like a traditional 12step, environment or, you know, other peer environment groups, that is strongly discouraged. The idea of like providing feedback or crosstalk. Mm-hmm. Um, but in SOSL meetings, it feels very safe and powerful because I know the person that's sharing with me is not telling me what to do. They're sharing how they've worked through something similar. And that's just a little bit of background. What I'm hoping to hear is how you found yourself getting involved with those survivors groups and maybe give you an opportunity to plug them for someone who is early on in their journey and looking for resources and ways to connect. What would you recommend about these groups to someone in that position?
1: Sure. So there's a database of survivors of suicide loss support groups through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention website, AFSP.org. And you can Put in your zip code or city, and it will show you the closest ones to you. As a response to the pandemic, there are also several that are online now. So that there doesn't matter where you are, you could access them. Our group is functioning as a hybrid meeting. So we meet in person, but I bring my computer so that those who can attend only by Zoom are able to do that. It was several years before I really felt like I could offer something to someone else. It took me, I think, probably three good years to get to a point where I felt like I was functioning normally in my life again. Or it was a different normal than than before after losing my dad, which I'm sure you get that. So I really, I'm proud of myself that I, that I worked through my own stuff first because one thing that I could have done, which wouldn't have been a healthful coping mechanism for me, would be to jump into helping others without having done that really foundational work of figuring my own journey out and how I can be there for myself through that. Yeah, it's been in February. February will be the fifth year. That will complete five years of the the group that we do. And I have a co-facilitator. And we usually have a professional therapist who will sit in just in case people have questions or need a little one-on-one support, maybe outside the room. It's It's a place where... Of course, no one wants to be the member of this club, but since we are in the same boat, it's a place where people can actually share really where they are. A lot of times when we share with others who haven't been through it, 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 their intentions are so good, but we sometimes end up taking care of them, or they approach us like they're ready for us to be like we were before, or over it, or just different than where we actually are. And so, people in these groups can share about really major feelings that they have. Some people feel relief. Some people have, you know, been worried that this is going to happen for so many years to the loved one, have been like the emergency contact and have have helped someone out of multiple attempts before so that's that's a feeling that a lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable to discuss and even there may even be a listener out there that says oh my gosh relief that's terrible but those of us who have been through this process were able to hold that deeper space where people can share something even like that and of course guilt fear There's just so much that comes up, and watching people support each other is just about it's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Of course, I've been in peer support in 12 step, and this is another form of that. And you know, I mean, science or statistics say peer support is amazing anyway, but being able to witness that and feel the energy of everybody like, yeah, I know where you are. I have been there and you're not alone. And, and newer survivors can see the hope in others who are a little bit more along. It's just a, it's an amazing thing to see how we all become experts on our own grief. And we can take in information from others and be helped by others even if it's just by hearing their experience or sitting next to them but it's it's really neat that we can all find our own way through that's individual and custom to us while we're surrounded by others who have done the same thing
0: that's that's a great great answer and it reminds me of what i love about those groups being able to be in a space where I can share some of the deepest and maybe even darkest things around losing my dad to suicide and be met with nothing but compassion and understanding is, is a really powerful thing. Um, and, and something they say in, in several of my 12-step groups, I, I've heard people say that the opposite of addiction is connection,
2: mm. which,
0: which I do believe, but <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's selling that idea a little bit short because what I've found is the way through any insurmountable challenge in my life has been community and connection. And I think that could be the case in a lot of things, whether it's losing a loved one to suicide and finding a group like the SOSL meetings, dealing with your own mortality uh, Mm -hmm. in, in having a chronic illness I've been part of uh, depression and bipolar peer support groups, so I mean anything where you feel alone, I find one like at least a piece of the puzzle is community and connection.
1: And it's a it's an ask for us to say, okay, you feel alone, and this is, you know, maybe it would be easier to hide under a rock, but if you can instead lean into that connection connecting with someone else or a group that's I mean it's a challenge but the benefits are there if you take that that step
0: absolutely so what I'm hoping you could walk me through I'm thinking about someone listening to this who is possibly early on in uh, surviving a suicide loss so a new survivor or someone who's you know well well within their new life as you well as being a survivor and hasn't found something like the SOSL meetings or other resources that are available through AFSP and all the other fantastic organizations. Two-part question. I'm wondering what advice you would have for those people, someone being a newer survivor or someone seeking what they can do to take the next step in their journey. And, So that's part one is what advice would you have for those people? And part two is why, why the SOSL meetings? Why, why should I do that? If that's something um, I'm skeptical about or unsure if it's going to help me or I'm scared of it because it can be a scary thing. uh, What would you say the benefit is for someone to give it a shot?
1: Mm. So one piece of advice that I would give to someone who's a new survivor of suicide loss, I would say, please try to be gentle with yourself. we when we lose someone and I'm sure there's a reason for this. I don't know what it is, but we can start to be really judgmental of ourselves. our functionality is less you know our when our emotional energy goes up, our physical energy depletes often we might feel exhausted like we're not doing what we know how to do as well as we used to do it. And so someone offered that piece of advice to me and it helped me a lot to not judge myself or to try not to, you know, it's really, it's difficult. (laughs) But when going through, you know, the first few months, it's just, it's kind of a rhythm. And you just kind of have to go with it and try to be, instead of saying, gosh, why can't I do this as well? Like, I can't believe what's wrong with me. It's better to say, okay, this is your body adjusting to this loss. That's that's a huge change in your life. And even saying to different parts of the body, okay, heart. I see this is what it feels like when I have this deep sadness after losing my friend or loved one. And then I think that my my suggestion around the survivors groups would be similar to what I said about about Reiki. You know, some people come to the groups and they find that they would rather not be in a group environment and that A one-on-one like a therapy uh, route might be better for them and that's totally fine I think that people what I hear from people when they have first come almost everybody who comes to the group for the first time says something to us afterward like I had no idea that this this was going to be I was going to feel this way here and I'm so glad. Thank you so much for holding this space. And so because of, I mean, I could consider that my own research. I suppose that that people do seem to feel certainly scared walking in, uncomfortable. It it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to even call and find out about it. But then to walk into the room and be able to look around and see there are all these people who have had who who know me can know me on this level that I haven't had to explain to them you know yes so i'd say give it a try if you if you're up for it and it may not be right for you but you may i think what you have to gain is more than you have to lose which would just be i think the time maybe a little comfort that you'd lose from walking into the room
0: yeah very, very well said i i went to my first survivors group in about three and a half years last month so in november i went and within about 10 minutes of being there it just clicked and i had this feeling of relief of like oh, i i remember why i came here mm-hmm. um and left left feeling uh Not just a lot better than when I got there, but left feeling full, uh, which which is a feeling I normally have when leaving there. So I'm definitely a big proponent of those groups and groups like it and grateful for the work that you and folks like yourself do to help make that machine keep moving. Um, I do have just one more question for you, but before I get to that, I want to give you an opportunity to share or ask Anything that maybe we haven't touched on?
1: The only thing would be that I can think of is that since you asked about how Reiki would be helpful to people who are grieving a loss or who have lost someone to suicide. And then about the survivors groups, if it would be okay, if I could just say like, just a short bit about this program that I'm launching because it actually has Reiki as a part of it, as well as the support group environment.
0: Yeah. I would love to hear about that.
1: Kind of a plug, but plug away. Okay. So I'll just share that this winter, I'm going to be launching the intro to a grief anchoring program where I'll facilitate and be able to anchor folks with the experience I've gained from my own loss and the journey thereof, and also through working with so many others who have who have lost loved ones to suicide. And this program will it's multifaceted. It's going to be a very feeling feelings welcome uh, wailing aloud <laughs> program where we can identify our grief, and see our grief more as a companion, as opposed to something we're trying to push far away or feel so much distance from, or that we're over-identifying in a way that makes it harder to function in our daily lives. Ideally, we would, when facing a loss like this, we would be able to take three months off, do all the business, do all the Therapy that we want to and really like focus just on that. But it's so unlikely in our society that that there aren't many people who have that luxury. So this is meant to be a program that you can use as you're going through your daily life little by little. And it has Reiki as a part of it. And it also has a support environment as a part of it. So I'm really excited to offer that. Eventually, it will be a two to three month program, but the intro will be one month. And that way, a four week deal where folks can kind of jumpstart that relating to their own grief and feeling through their feelings in ways that will be helpful for them as they're on their path.
0: Wow. Yeah, that that is incredible. Thank you for sharing that. It's something I'm definitely curious to learn more about. And, and for others who want to learn more about it, is there um, a link uh, or an email I could put in the show notes for someone to reach out if it's something they're interested in?
1: Sure. I use my um, Instagram to post about it. And that's at Reiki for today, which is R-E-I-K-I-F-O-R-T-O-D-A-Y and my website, reikifortoday.com.
0: Excellent. Uh, I'll put both your handle and... Oh, go
1: ahead. Uh, You said email, so people could also email marshall at reikifortoday.com.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll put all three of those resources in the show notes so people can click those if they want to learn more.
1: Thank you so much.
0: No, thank you. I I really appreciate you coming on today on short notice. And as I knew I would, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, and it's great to reconnect with you. The last question I want to ask you, and we've touched on it a little bit, but if there's anything we didn't touch on or as you've had a chance to reflect on it a little bit more, what would you want to leave our our listeners with um, in terms of your dad? Um, I want to know is there is there something you want people to know or remember about him or walk away from this episode feeling like they know about him? Hmm. It's a big question.
1: I, I think what I've done is I read somewhere in some book about grief and loss that we tell our stories as long as we need to tell them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I've been lucky to have people who truly have listened when I have brought up my dad. They're looking at me, they're attentive. They're, you know, friends and family have just stopped what they're doing and listened to me share my story. And since he was my father, I think the best way that I can help people to know him is to live my life in some ways as a tribute to him and in some ways to to honor him. So I don't want to use that as a way that I judge myself, oh, my father wouldn't approve of this or that, you know, like we could from when we were kids, but just to share when it feels right to share about his life or something he might have said. And I think that, yeah, the best way Because sometimes I think it's sad, the people that I meet from now on won't know him, won't be able to meet him. You you might experience that too. It's strange to think about this person who's so been so foundational and important in my life. These people won't know, but I think they do know him through what stories I tell and different jokes. He loved uh, attorney jokes. He said, (laughs) you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't think that someone in that profession would, but that shows how he didn't take himself so seriously, you know?
0: Right, right.
1: So I guess that's, that's what I would share that, you know, we all, we always say he, he was a good man. If Someone, when someone passes, he, Oh, he was a good man.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think he was, but that the complexity, we don't always know what people are going through really deep down. Mm. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that answer. That was beautifully said. I, I again appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, and and further appreciate all the work that you do for fellow survivors and as a healer. Um, it was really great to reconnect with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon at another survivors meeting.
1: My pleasure, Rob. Thank you so much for asking me to to do this. I. I love the opportunity to talk about both my experience and the working with others. It's been such a enriching part of my life that came from that pain. So pain taking pain and helping it become purposeful is sometimes the best thing we can do, I think.
0: I love that. So
1: thank you. It's and it's great to connect with you as well. We'll have to talk more about we'll have a a dad day and be able to talk about (laughs) our dads, you know?
0: I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for the work that you do. It's something that I I think you're really great at. And it's something that is important and impactful. So thanks again, Marshall. And I will talk to you soon.
1: Thank you, Rob. Have a great day.
0: You as well. Bye-bye.